lunch and I was thinking about how I really wish I had time to go rewrite my talk considering all of the wonderful things that were said uh, this morning. But I think, you know, the, the wonderful thing about this is the way all of this work ties together. And I think um, I was glad to Stanley for the reminder that um, to look at when the media is reporting on obesity and when the media is reporting on something else using obesity as a vehicle. Um, and that's been a large focus of my work, and it's not always so easy to disentangle because often the two are, are happening simultaneously. So one thing that we do know is that media attention given to obesity in the United States is unprecedented, constant, and central to the construction of obesity as one of the greatest social problems facing the US um, and indeed the world in the 21st century. You know, you see articles where it says that the greatest US export apparently is obesity. Um, and there are obviously a lot of things that we could be talking about in terms of obesity in the US media, especially over an extended period. But, and there are an infinite number of media representations of obesity, both textual and visual, to draw on. But in the time I have today, I'd like to address what I see as the main themes that have characterized media representation of obesity in the first day, decade of the obesity epidemic, um, in the 1990s, and continue to define media coverage of obesity through the past decade. Because in, in the United States, we've been talking about obesity as epidemic um, since, since the early 1990s. And then I'll talk about when you take all these themes together, what can they tell us not only about obesity um, in the United States, but more significantly about the culture, cultural, social, and economic anxieties and interests that undergird and perpetuate this American obsession with obesity. And just a very quick note about method is that in my work, in the work I'm presenting today, I've chosen to focus on the New York Times. And I've done this for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the New York Times is still considered to be the paper of record in the United States. Uh, it, it by no means is the only source of information on obesity, but it's also particularly noted for its science and health reporting, which is significant because when we look at the, at, like we were discussing earlier, often the, people are less rigorous in their science reporting about obesity than they are about other topics. You get sort of the amorphous researchers say, or doctors concur, or studies show, um, and there's very often very little, little rigor and specificity to these articles. And then the second reason is that the New York Times, New York Times occupies a uh, place, as, a privileged place as a leading opinion center and setter among intellectuals, professionals, policymakers, and the general educated public. And so um, the, the New York Times is often sort of the vehicle through which claims of policymakers, claims of, of obesity's moral entrepreneurs, filter into the public, or at least first find their place in the public. And in that sense, it's also a place in which um, there's sort of a selective presentation of expert opinion, but that's another issue. And then third, which is, is sort of a more general approach, is that as medical and scientific knowledge are no longer primarily transmitted within the doctor-patient relationship, but through this democratization of health, access to health-related 
information via media and the internet, sources like the Times become more central to the layperson's understanding of health, science, and medicine. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, <coughs> whose talk it was, I think it was Paula's, that you know, we, we often come to, the average American comes to this, a reading of obesity science with a lot of preconceived notion about fatness, the fat bodies, the fat individual. Okay. So today, I'm going to focus on, um, let's see, three main themes that have kind of spanned this 20 years of coverage, intensifying at different times. Um, and there are certainly more themes I discussed, but I think th these themes are important because they've been consistently present in media discussions of obesity since the early 1990s. And the repetition and intensification of these themes is part and parcel of where we are now in terms of thinking about the American obesity epidemic. So I'll be looking at these three themes. Obesity as a physical and fiscal threat, the obesity crisis as a scientific given, and obesity as a problem of the poor, minorities, children, and um, as Meg was talking about, by extension, their mothers. So in looking at obesity as a physical and fiscal threat, um, these two quotes from, from very different time periods both appeared as lead article, in lead articles in the New York Times, and while the second clearly reflects a post-9-11 shift in language to that of terrorism, threat, and risk, they're not all that different in their sense, in their attempt to convey the urgency of the situation. And it's this sense of urgency that's critical to establishing obesity as a national crisis with both economic and individual health risks. So articles that fall within this theme are usually clustered around three central issues. The first is on reporting rates of obesity. There's a sort of a constant focus on what percentage of Americans are overweight or obese at any given moment. There's sort of a constant attempt to pinpoint where we are and use that as a barometer of how severe the obesity epidemic is. What the New York Times did not report on is that one of the most significant shifts in the rates of obesity and overweight in the United States came in 1998 when the U.S. National Institutes of Health lowered the BMI threshold for obesity and overweight down by two points, uh, dropping it into accordance with the World Health Organization standards. But with that drop overnight and without eating a single calorie, 30 million more Americans entered the ranks of the overweight and obese. Um, and this also allowed the media and, and scientists to make one of the most oft-repeated claims uh, about obesity in the US is that at that point, it could now be said that more than half of Americans are overweight or obese. And, and that while any you know, statistics not relying on the BMI will show, that average American weights have indeed been increasing, much of that sort of precipitous increase can be related back to this shift in NIH standards that really doesn't go, report, that really is, is unreported, basically, or often very much underreported when uh, reporting on rates of obesity. And these numbers about rates of obesity, about the percentage of Americans are, who are obese, 
continue to be repeated, and it's sort of this lack of attention to the context in which these numbers emerge, that can really be said to be a lost opportunity to critically interrogate many of the taken-for-granted truths of the obesity epidemic, right? That we have this sort of scientific and cultural black box of obesity, and we take things like those numbers and we put them in there never to be opened again. A second, and, and kind of related in its efforts to um, put a numerical value on the epidemic, is a focus on cost. There's an attempt to put a price tag on obesity. And um, I'm sure this is similar elsewhere, but it's rarely clear how these numbers are calculated uh, and, and what they include and what they don't include. If they include the, pro the price, or if they include the tens of billions of dollars a year Americans spend on diet products and services as, as we continue to gain weight. Um, in the early 1990s, the media reported estimated costs to be in the tens of billions of dollars. Now this has come to be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And certainly, starting in 2008 with President Obama's attempt to, again, pass some sort of meaningful health care reform, uh, which still remains to be seen if it's, if it's meaningful, um, he also cited the cost of obesity and the need to address obesity as a part of getting American weights down, getting American health care costs down, uh, and, and obesity, especially childhood obesity, has become his, his wife's pet project, the project of the First Lady. And um, there's, there are lots of interesting discussions and analyses that could be had about her program, right, and its corporate partnership with organizations like Walmart, et cetera, known for their concern with public health. Okay, so <laughs> sorry to be snarky. Um, and then a focus on cause, prevention, and cure. And this is a wide focus, right, that there are discussions of things like maternal hypothesis that Meg talked about, Right? There's discussions of genetic factors, environmental factors, viral factors. And these are occasionally explored, but even in the articles that sort of appear to advocate for these less individualistic explanations of obesity, or at least in which the scientists and researchers adhering to a particular theory tend to advocate for this particular theory, it's often brought back to this individualistic explanation. And there's um, a quote, right? So there's sort of always this recourse to individualistic behavior, individual behavior, even as sometimes these, these very scientific, scientific explanations are presented. And one, and in 1997, there was a, a feature article, a lengthy article in the health section about possible viral explanations for obesity. And throughout the article, you have these researchers who are espousing this theory or this connection between certain viruses and later obesity, sort of talking in these very scientific terms about this. Yet, the final line of the article reads, quote, poor diet and lack of exercise are the overall main causes of obesity. Doctors agree. But not the doctors presented in this particular article. Um, but this individual, this recourse to individual behavior is sort of always available, and um, particularly when looking at causes of obesity, but elsewhere I've kind of explored it in relation to failure of bariatric surgery, et cetera. Okay. So then this second theme 
is that the obesity epidemic and the negative health impacts of obesity are both scientific givens and common sense. So the media, including the Times, presents the dangers of, of the obesity epidemic and the negative health impacts of obesity as a scientific fact, and the body mass index as a reliable measure of both body composition and overall health. But what's interesting is if you look further into the public health literature on the BMI, you often find this uneasiness, right? We know this is not a good measure. We know this is a very flawed measure of health, right? Um, but it's the best we have right now. There's sort of a grudging acceptance of it. But when it, that comes to the media, it's portrayed as sort of the, the measure of health. And again, in, in sort of trying to establish, to put a numerical value on, um, on various aspects of the obesity crisis, one of the areas in which um, we see this most often is how many deaths obesity causes. And it's always conveyed this way. It's not conveyed as a correlate, right, that obesity is related to this many deaths. That there is a distinct, um, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, an intentional conflation of correlation and cause that ends up reinforcing the idea that people are walking down the street and dropping dead of obesity every day. And again, just thinking about what people were talking about earlier about how often the source of scientific information is um, obscured, sources are vague, and there's often a case in which advocates become experts. Right? This is very common with obesity. Advocates become experts. If you look at in the US, all of the leading obesity scientists in the US are also um, often on the payroll of organizations like Weight Watchers International, various bariatric surgery societies, various pharmaceutical companies, etc. So very difficult to untangle the interests here. While the sm there's a small percentage of times reporting on obesity that does question some of the claims made about the link between weight and health, Yet, nowhere does the Times question the existence of an epidemic, right? That's the starting point. The epidemic is a starting point. So, let's see. And even reports that question some received knowledge about fatness, fat people, and dieting really fall short of critically interrogating this existence of an epidemic. And more often than not, um, one of the common tropes in these articles that do offer some critical perspective is the dangers of having a critical perspective. It is dangerous to question whether the BMI is a good measure of health. It is dangerous to question the fat equals death equation. Um, it is dangerous to suggest that maybe we should think about ways that people can be fat and fit, right? That any dissent is danger in a time of epidemic that we really don't have the time to quibble over the details here. Let's cut these weights down. Let's prevent, let's cure. And so we get very little discussion of alternative framings of obesity, and they're often kind of um, delegitimated from the start. Let's see. Along with this, and, and tying into what, what Meg said, said about mother blame for obesity and what I've written about elsewhere, is that one of the most dangerous things is that parents in loving their children don't realize that their children are fat and don't do anything about it, that they want to see their children as perfect and, and therefore they're in denial about the weight of their children and that we need to sort of get parents particularly to take this crisis more seriously. Um, 
So again, like I said, that the, the existence of the, the epidemic has taken for granted starting point on reporting on obesity has the effect of silencing critical voices and training media focus on intervention into and prevention of obesity rather than on larger discussions about public health and access to health care, which is you know, a very distinct feature of the American context, is that health care in the U.S. is a privilege, it's not a right. So that um, any discussion of obesity, the cost of obesity, the um, associated illnesses to obesity sort of has to be looked at in the context of this being a society which does not provide medical care, preventive or otherwise, for tens of millions of its citizens, many of them poor, many of them obese. So, so what are we really measuring when we talk about those deaths? How much, how much in there is the impact of being uninsured, is the impact of poverty? Two minutes, oh, please. Three minutes, okay, I better hurry up, okay. Do, do, do. So I'm gonna skip to this, because I think this is pretty important in the American case, is that obesity is a problem of the poor minorities, children, and by extension, mothers. So in the early 90s, we were focused on overall rates of obesity, sometimes broken down by age or sex, but with more health data being kept that includes racial and ethnic identification and income, particular populations began to be targeted as problematic, most significantly African Americans, Hispanics, and the poor. And so we get this focus on a culture of obesity in two senses. And um, I'll just kind of skip through this quickly because I think we've talked about it a lot, is that there's a culture of obesity in the sense that American culture is this obesogenic society, what we eat, how we produce and distribute food, the kinds of labor-saving devices we have, the entertainment we're into, the kind of work we do promotes obesity. And then, again, looking at, um, you know, a quote that kind of illustrates, again, this theme of mother blame. But what's, what's most interesting to me is this second usage of a culture of obesity in regards to specific ethnic cultures whose food preparation and eating habits, whether traditional or contemporary, are seen to be contributing to the epidemic. And this comes across pretty clearly in an article detailing a program implemented in a small southern town by researchers from the University of Alabama. Um, and this pro program targets African American culture in the rural south, an area in which a culture of obesity, the article tells us, predates the Civil War and represents the most extreme contemporary example of a nutritionist bad dream. Um, and you can see here that, that the solution, while there are three doctors, no hospitals, no ambulances, no 911 services, population is 79% African American, high unemployment, very low income, um, that what this community needs is not more doctors, healthcare, social services, jobs. What this community needs, according to uh, the Times quoting program leaders, is an attempt to improve community health by, quote, teaching women how to stay well by changing their behavior and doing the unthinkable, banishing collard greens, smothered in fat back, and other traditional high-fat favorites in the rural South. What's interesting here is that when talking about white women, white women are contributing to the obesity of their children because they don't cook anymore and rely on convenience foods. African-American mothers, especially rural, and Hispanic mothers in particularly, do cook. Right? But the problem is what they're cooking. So it's kind of like you can't, you can't win, and it shows really the intersection of, of race and gender in this case. 
And this is just one example of the targeting of African-American and Hispanic communities to the fact that we now have a culture of obesity framework in the United States that works much the way culture of poverty arguments worked in the 1960s, right? You take communities and you blame people for their own ill health and poverty as you shift attention away from structural inequalities. And so I just want to conclude with three quick points. In the United States, in a society that's uncomfortable talking about poverty, race, ethnicity, obesity becomes a way to talk about all three, right? We talk about race by talking about obesity. We talk about race by talking about, or we talk about poverty by talking about obesity, right? That it's become this overall frame with which we can talk about all of these other social problems. And then again, as others have mentioned, that seeing health as solely a product of individual behaviors reproduces and furthers the emergence of health as sort of the new morality. And this um, you know, sort of comes through also in movements that we see in the United States, the sort of Michael Pollan, slow food, locavore movements, which um, sort of in their equation of weight and health alienate many larger people who, who would seemingly be receptive to the messages of these movements and critical of, in fact, the very flawed way in which we produce and subsidize and market food in the United States. But the persistence of these frames also really fits well with the government's need to individualize ill health and inequality and the weight loss industry's need for increased profits. So I'll just wrap up by saying that you know, scholars of moral panics remind us that this individualization of social problems is not really exclusive to obesity, that many have written about how the over-reporting on phenomena such as violent crime, child abduction, teenage pregnancy, and road rage creates a culture of fear that in turn contributes to ever-increasing media coverage of these issues to the effect that problems like poverty go underreported. And so obesity is certainly no exception to this, and it's perhaps, perhaps the best example of the tenacity of this type of overreporting as we end, enter the, the, or as we near the 20-year mark of the uh, obesity epidemic with no abatement in coverage or abatement in weight gain, I guess, um, <laughs> in sight. So thank you. Sorry. Thank you.